Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8, as well as turning your bulletin to the outline, and we'll use that to follow along and read quotes and the like. So Joshua, or Joshua, Romans chapter 8, um, I was thinking Joshua, the son of Nun, is the only other person who didn't have a mother and father in the Bible. Did you guys know that? He's the son of Nun. So. That's why I was thinking of Joshua. He said that I was thinking that joke up there. From Nels himself, sorry. So Romans chapter 8, we are in this book, eighth um, benefit that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. What we're looking at is really 28, but I'm putting in a, a parentheses 29 and 30 because we'll, we'll touch upon that. And, uh, um, uh, but we're really looking at 28 as the last stated benefit that, uh, that Paul gives us here in this wonderful chapter. So um, this is God's word. Let me invite you to, to therefore stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of the word of our king. Um, Romans 8, 28 through 30, we read these words. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this holy moment in our lives where we are privileged to sit now with your Bibles in our laps, opened, and Lord, with the grace to understand your word. And so fellowship and be nourished at, during this meal time in this service, Lord, this time where we sit down with you and enjoy the peace offering, where your word is broken to us by Christ. And we feast upon not only the servant, but, or, or not only the lamb, but the servant who is both. Father, we, we pray you'd bless this time, open our eyes, give us grace to understand, but also, Lord, give us responsiveness to do more than just simply be theologues or theologians, but to be servants of the living God who sit at your feet as did Mary and sup upon the words, the morsels that fall. And uh, Lord, give us grace to so sup and grow and be, and be encouraged and built up in you. Line upon line, precept upon precept, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Of all the books in the Bible, the book of Romans, as you probably well know, is uh, perhaps the most doctrinal book. It uh, gives such glorious um, teachings on such topics as the nature of God, the nature of man, his fallenness, salvation, um, the glorious uh, um, call and uh, um, privilege of definitive sanctification and the call of, of progressive sanctification. And then it talks about the place of, of God's people um, in God's eternal plan. Um, and then it goes on with five chapters of application. Now, of all of the incredible statements in this book, and there are so many, um, Romans 8.28 is perhaps the most well-quoted yet misunderstood. It's quoted by a lot. Most people know Romans 8.28, even before they're saved. But it is perhaps one of the most misunderstood in the entire epistle. On the one hand, we love Romans 8.28 because it's so comforting. Many find it comforting as you think of trial and difficulty. On the other hand, the promise 
um, oftentimes is spurned on account of its seemingly incongruent message in the face of loss. On the one hand, we read this passage and we, we, we learn such glorious truths with regards to the future in regards to God's plan and will and what he's doing in our, our lives. But on the other hand, to use this in the context of ministry as I did early, 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 early on in my Christian walk, you can receive a response of anger and frustration and uh, um, uh, um, biting you, um, to quote this, this, this verse. And, and that makes sense because Romans 8.28 is dealing with the topic, which is not easy. And the topic is not why do bad things happen to good people because we know in Scripture there are no good people. So that, that really is not the, the issue. The struggle that we have as God's people is why, do, why does God allow such difficulty to come upon the people he loves? I mean, God loves us. God so loved the world. He loves us. Why does he allow our lives, God's people's lives, to be so difficult? I mean, I think I oftentimes find myself comforted by Isaiah and Jeremiah, who spent 30, 40, 50 years, depending on which one, ministering to God's people, and yet they received no positive fruit. Theirs was a ministry of condemnation. So they were beaten and attacked and abused and ridiculed. God, why? They're your servants. They're just trying to serve you. Why is it that, that, that um, God put a thorn in Paul's flesh? I mean, why does God do these things? And while the specific answer, particular to our case, may not be forthcoming, we may not understand um, on this side of the grave why, Romans 8.28 doesn't even answer why. In light of the fact that we do not know the answer, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Romans 8, 28 comes along to give us comfort. And so confidence to face an uncertain tomorrow. God says in Philippians 1, 29, for to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer. We're all going to suffer, brothers and sisters. It's part of Christianity on this side of the grave. Romans 8.28 was written to give us confidence. If you just walk with Romans or Philippians 1, knowing that we're all called to suffer, you may leave here frightened, um, um, shocked, um, you know, scared. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next? Romans 8.28 was written to give us confidence. It's the culmination of, 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 the, of the previous seven uh, uh, um, blessings or benefits that flow from the cross of Jesus Christ, it culminates in this one. Therefore, with no condemnation, all the glorious things God has given us in Jesus Christ, we can live with confidence in this world as we gaze upon the, the future. What's going to happen next? Maybe not in my own life, but in this nation. What's going to happen next? Maybe not in our nation, but in this church. What's going to happen next? Maybe not in our lives, but in, in the life of a loved one who's just been diagnosed with cancer. What's going to happen next? This gives us confidence. Strong confidence. So we're going to look at this passage together, walk away through it. First, let's look at the promise itself. Let's make sure we're very clear as to what this text specifically is saying. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through it phrase by phrase. Let's uh, pick it up. Verse 28. 
And we know. We'll stop there. There are two words, primary words, in the Greek for know. All the other words for know are typically built off these words. The first word is gnosko. And gnosko, as you probably know, is a relational knowledge. And thus it's a growing knowledge. It's not something you know in total. It's something that you, that you come to. So it's the word used when we talk about eternal life is knowing God, John 17, 3. It's a love relationship. It's a relational knowledge. When Genesis 4 says, and Cain knew his wife and she uh, conceived, and the Septuagint, the word there is gnosko. So it's this relational, growing, wonderful word. Okay? The other word is oida. And oida, in contrast to gnosko, speaks of the fullness of knowledge. Okay, it's, it's the fullness of knowledge. And so it is a definitive knowledge. It's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a well-known. So for example, if I were to write in the Greek as a, as a Greek homework assignment, if I had to write, we know one plus one equals two, I would not use gnosko. I'd use oida. And that is why, for example, in Psalm 45, verse two, when it says um, how beautiful you are, Right? Um, God, um, you, you, are, you are fair. You are beautiful. The word used there is oida. Okay? It's describing the... the it, it, it usually refers to this, this... Actually, that has nothing to do... I'll get back out of that. Oida is, is all about fullness of knowledge. Well, when we come to our text here, and it says, and we know, guess what the word is? It's oida. So Paul here is not... He's not speaking... Um, as a, you know, casually. He is making a doctrinal affirmation in this text. Based upon everything we just saw, Romans 8, 1 through 27, we have this incredible confident statement. Confidence before God. We absolutely know without a shadow of a doubt. That's the idea behind Oida versus uh, Gnosko. Okay? Notice, and we know, that God causes all things. It is an incredible statement, especially in light of the context. Notice with me verse 26 um, and 27. In the same way, the Spirit, this is the seventh, uh, seventh uh, benefit, and the Spirit, in the, um, the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray, brothers and sisters. We're at a loss when it comes to, to, to praying, to depending upon God and what to pray for. That was the seventh uh, benefit. But the Spirit of God intercedes for us, right? But notice, we don't know how to pray. And then now 28, in fact, brothers and sisters, not only do we not know how to pray when it comes to our weaknesses, the Spirit of God is there helping us. Get this, brothers and sisters. While we may not know how to pray, we do know this, that all things, and the word all there, pos, means everything, everything, every. every it goes from the largest to the smallest things that happen in our lives. All things. It's all. It's it's all encompassing. Um, we tend to look at this word and and right now sitting back on our on our ivory tower type mentality. You know, as we sit on the porch when we're not going through the the difficulties, we can read this this and say and say all things. You better believe. But when we're going through it, we don't believe it's all things work together for good. We only believe the inconvenient things. When I sit on my, my balcony, I go, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I missed, this, I missed that, that stoplight. You know, okay, I can just accept that from, the hand, from God's hand. But let God smite me. Let me get cancer. 
Let me get in a car wreck and get crippled. Let me lose that job that now I'm unemployed for a long time. And I can begin uh, responding um, to God going, God, why? What are you doing? And God answers that here. And so when we come and say, yeah, but all things work together. Don't give me that. That's horrible to quote that now. I'm struggling. And you're giving me that, that trite statement. Brothers and sisters, all things from the smallest rotation of an electron around a nucleus to everything in this world, the big things, all things. So we know this. We have this, this doctrinal, strong uh, confession of faith. All things in our lives, all things from a, a moth hitting my, my, my windshield as I drive on the highway to the largest things in my world, all things, notice the next phrase, work together. The word for work uh, together. Real, real, uh, quick, let me back up. All things, and the reason why, we, why it's so strong with all things is because, brothers and sisters, God is intimately involved in this world. Did you know that? Obviously, hopefully. He's intimately involved in the smallest things. Hebrews says he upholds all things by the word of his power. That involves everything. Everything right now that is moving, that is in this world, he's upholding by the word of his power. Hannah prayed, There is no one like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to shoal and rises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He humbles. He also exalts. God is sovereignly involved in this world. God does not sit back and say, well, Satan, you can do these things. Hannah knew better. God's intimately involved in the good and in the bad. The next verse, Isaiah 45. Isaiah said as much when he wrote, I am the Lord and there's no, no, no other. The one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. In the Hebrew, that's the word for evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. But as sisters, God is intimately involved. Intimately involved in every facet of life. And that is how it is that God can make all things. We can say, we know. God, God can make all things. And now you go, well, wait a second. If he's involved in those things, that makes it sound like ends justify the means. God uses evil to bring about his uh, purpose. I mean, God, 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 God sins. To, no, no, no. Absolutely not. In fact, what saves us from that thought is the next phrase, to work uh, together. Soon, er, uh, what's the word? Soon, soon ergo. Okay? It literally means to work with or to work together with. And so this tells us that, brothers and sisters, unlike anything else in this world, God is not creating sin. He doesn't sin. But what God does do is, in the context of his providential will, he steps into the deepest, darkest places of this earth. And he, and he, and he uses those elements to bring about what we'll see here in one moment. Good. Think about this, brothers and sisters. This is awesome. Who can do this? Who can do this? Satan can't. But God is intimately involved in the worst things of this world, and yet he uses them to bring about an amazing 
glorious end. And what is that amazing glorious end? That amazing glorious end is, is what he calls here, all things to work together for good. Now let's talk about what this word good is. Sorry, I sort of gave you the definition, you know, the definition of no. There's two words in the Greek for good, primarily. These are the roots. Kalos. Kalos is the word for beautiful. That's the word in Isaiah 45. Okay, it's, it usually refers to external beauty, primarily. So if I said, Christ, you are a beautiful God, Isaiah 45 too. That's what the Septuagint uses, kalos. Okay, thou art beautiful. Okay, it, it refers primarily to external goodness um, before uh, the Lord. Um, it's the word that we'd use to refer to someone or something that has outward beauty. The next word is agathos. And agathos can refer to external beauty, but it primarily refers to that which is internally, intrinsically good, beautiful, but also has a good result, a good effect. Okay, so for example, if you said, man, that was a good book, what you're saying biblically, if you use that word agathos, is that that book encouraged me to grow in my walk with God. That book uh, helped me to understand God. Okay, it's something that, that has a good, a beneficial result. If I say something was, someone has a good heart, it means that, that they work for the benefit of others. The impact of that person in people's lives is he, is he or she edifies them, builds them up. That's the word agathos. A good quiet time, I just uh, said that. Um, the word that is used in this context is agathos. So get this, God works God works all things. Or maybe I should just read it the way that it says. We know as a conviction before God that God causes all things, the good and the bad, the small, the big, to work together. So, okay, so they are working, coinciding. He brings out of these horrible and good things, he brings out that which is agathos. That which is intrinsically good. Now, what is intrinsically good? We're talking about, brothers and sisters, an incredible reality. Okay? But that's what this promise is talking about, and I'm going to answer that in one moment. That's what this promise is saying. God, we know. Brothers and sisters, did you know that? As a Christian, you, 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 you know this. This is not uh, something we should speculate upon. This is not something that we walk out of here going, boy, I hope I can grasp that. This is something that we absolutely positively know. We may not know a lot of things in this world. We may not know the future, but this we do know. All things. God works all things together for good. What, what should come to your mind, what comes to my mind, is Big Ben's inner workings. You know the Big Ben clock? One of the largest clock towers in the world. Big Ben has thousands upon thousands of sprockets, levers, bolts, <laughs> rivets, iron, iron pieces, hundreds of thousands of pieces. Okay, And if you go in there and watch it work, I got a video I was watching this morning actually on it. You've got one sprocket going one way, which turns as another sprocket going the other way. So one's advancing, one's not advancing. You got one lever going up, another lever going down. You got this twirly thing going on at all times. Brothers and sisters, God is, that's a beautiful picture of how God works in his providence. This is a perceptive forward. But brothers and sisters, the next week, there's a setback. 
and you're wondering, what is going on, God? Do you want... I understand God is, is working all things, just like with a big band. All those things, those thousands upon th- hundreds of thousands of parts of big band. What do they do? They work together to produce one thing. What is it? Very good time. That's what God's doing. God is working all things to produce that which is essentially good. Now, brothers and sisters, the only way you're going to see essentially good in your life is when you are in the new heavens and the new earth. So do you understand what, what, what this text is saying? In and through all things, God has one end game in mind, and that's the new heavens and the new earth. Do you understand that? That's what God has in his mind. Now, to see that more fully, we have to define good a little more. When we talk about good, this text doesn't give us the definition. It doesn't mention this, but it, 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 it implies this. So let me give you what was implied in this text. And that is this. We begin here. In the, in the world right now, how many nations are there? That's a trick question. If you say, oh, there's a lot. No, there aren't. There's only two nations. There's only two, two, two kingdoms. There's only two nations. Okay? One nation is the kingdom of God, what we call the city of God. Okay, for example, John 18. Jesus answered uh, in response to Pilate's uh, question, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Christ came and said, I've got a kingdom. One of the first statements he made publicly, formally, one of the first first formal statements he made as um, after the um, uh, temptation was, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Okay, the key, he came to proclaim the kingdom, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. So there's one kingdom. That kingdom is God's. Okay, Christ's. We call that the city of God, this, okay, the kingdom of God. But there's another kingdom. And that kingdom is what is known as the city of man or the kingdom of Satan. Listen to Luke chapter 4. Um, when Satan uh, tempted Christ, he, Satan, led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the nations, in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain for, and its glory. For it, what? All these nations have been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. That's the city of man. That's the kingdom of Satan. Only two kingdoms. All people are in one of two kingdoms. You know, oh no, that, that's a Russian, that's a Ukrainian, that's a, a you know, a Ugandian, that's a, that's a U.S., that's a U.S., what do you call us, Americans, but yeah, we have North and South America. But that's a Canadian, that's, right, we have all these different nations, maybe, or, or perhaps all these different people groups, but they're all lumped into only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the city of man and the city of God. That's it. Well, when, when we read this passage, all things work together for good, what context is that good referencing? Those who have a problem with this, this statement, take it in terms of the city of man. All things work together for good. Good? When I got my head chewed off by a sister of mine in the Lord in college whose boyfriend just broke up with her, and I started to say, Sister, you know, Lord... You love Christ, trust him. He's going to bring this about for a good end. Because after all, Romans 8.28 says, and that's when I got my head chewed off. She was taking that in the context of the city of man. Her whole world was, 
I want this guy to be my husband. I want to marry this man, and he just broke up with me. My whole future plans for this world are gone. Well, God does not come and say, well, guess what? You're going to get a better husband. You're going to get a better marriage than that would have been. That's not what this promise is saying. This is saying God is able to use this horrible moment in your life because he has an end game in mind. He's going to use this to equip you and prepare you for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. Brothers and sisters, you think about this for just a little bit. If you realize there's two kingdoms and then you realize that these kingdoms are, are at an opposite, what I'm just, what, what'd you say, an, a, um, an, an inverse relationship, you realize what this passage really means. Think about it. Let me just read it. Um, if you want to be first in God's kingdom, you've got to be last in the present. You want to be rich in the kingdom of God? You must recognize your spiritual poverty in the present. You want to be exalted in God's kingdom? You've got to be humbled here. You want to reign with God in the kingdom of God? You've got to serve here. The world says if you want to reign, trample on people, grab power by the horns, and, and run with it. God says, no, if you want to reign, you've got to be humble. You've got to be a servant. Wash people's feet. But Lord, that doesn't work in Walls at Wall Street. It may not work in Wall Street. It may not work on the football field, you know? Hey, by the way, we're running a pass play. And I'm gonna let you get in and get the quarterback because I'm a servant, right? Or you know, because I, I want to be big. Guys, that doesn't work. On the football field, in 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 much of life, it requires I gotta block you, I gotta stop you from getting what you want. Brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of God, now, this raises huge questions, like practically speaking, then how do I be a Christian football player? We'll talk about that some other time. But understand, we have two kingdoms that are an inverse situation. You want to be wealthy in God's kingdom? Well, you got, you, got to, you got to take Christ. Christ is our wealth. It's not money. So you give up, you give up any thought of wealth on this side of the grave. That doesn't mean wealth's wrong. But what you go, if you want to be wealthy, truly wealthy, then you give yourself to the Lord because he made him who was, who was, who was um, rich to become poor that we through his poverty might become rich, right? It's in Christ. That's the wealth, uh, riches of the world. So when you start saying all things work together for good to those who love God, understand you're not at cross purposes when things aren't going your way. God can work even in those moments to bring about a good which by definition is, is, is against the kingdom of God. So when we say we know without a shadow of a doubt God, which means he's good, is working all things for good, this good God, this gracious God, this kind God, this, this tender God, this gentle God, is working and moving in all these different ways in your life from the smallest instant, uh, um, um, insignificant thing to the largest. He's bringing about his perfect end, which is your perfect good. Think about that. Because he has the end game in mind, the end game which is not this side of the grave. We, we want God, personally, we want God to think of this side of the grave. Lord, I'm a Christian now. Make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's the health and wealth movement. 
We think it's all on this side. Brothers and sisters, God's end game is the new heavens and the new earth. And when this text says, and we know without a shadow of a doubt, how do we know this? Based upon everything we've just seen. But then there's more. All things work together for, for good. All things. That what happened in my life just now, this day, this last week, this coming week, God is going to use so that in the new heavens and the new earth, we might fully enjoy him there. Think about that. Isn't that glorious? So you go, God, you don't care. That fiance just broke up with me. Don't you care? Oh, you better believe he cares. He's working all things so that there's going to be a conversation. And think about this. You're going to have a conversation with Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And that conversation will be impacted by what God is doing on this side of the grave in your life. So right now, we look at it and go, well, I don't know what that conversation is, but boy, I wish I had more money in my bank account. You know? God, could it be both, right? But if you don't, you've got to live by faith and realize, brothers and sisters, someday, all of this is going to be this glorious aha moment. Aha. Now I see. I've had, have you had those moments? I've had those moments in training. I've had those moments in education, studying things. You know, why do I have to study this stupid stuff in, in, in name it, biology 100 or whatever, right? Math 100. Wait till you get to math 800. Graduate level course. All of that's going to make sense. Aha, now I know why we had to do that. Right? Those aha moments. Can you imagine what eternity is going to be like? As we reflect upon the things in this world, we're going to look back and go, aha, wow, now I see it. God works all things. Indeed, he not only works, but he worked all things in my life together for good. For this very glorious moment, this very moment, and the rest of the moments that we'll have in eternity future, all of that was God working towards on this side of the grave. Now, who's this for? Is this, is this God's working for everyone's life? Quickly, Romans 28, B. Eight, uh, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. The, uh, a condition for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. So this was only true. This isn't true of all men. This is only true of those who love God and are basically serving his purpose. Christian, do you love God? And are you serving his purpose? You know, well, that excludes me. Because I don't love God as much as I should. And I certainly am not serving the purpose of God as much as I should. So therefore, wow, there are times in my life all things are not working together for good. Because it's only for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. If that's your thinking, you've completely misunderstood this verse. To those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose are not descriptions of a Christian but a title. When someone says, are you a believer? Do you go, yeah, well, sort of, at times. Sometimes I don't trust God, so not really. Yeah, well, yeah. When someone comes and says, hey, are you a believer? What would you say? Yes. Well, wait, aren't they talking about how much you believe? No, it's a title. The Bible uses many titles for Christians. Believers, followers of the Lord. Christian, three times, one, right? one positively. All these different titles of, of Christians. Well, guess what? 
A lover of God is a title of a Christian. Paul here is not talking about what we do. He's not uniting what God does to what we do. He's saying this is what God does for all of his children. And who are his children? By definition, those who love God. Let me give you a couple of verses. It's 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If someone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. If you don't love Christ, you're not saved. Well, what is that? That's a title. That's not what we do. Now, does this result in what we do? Of course. But this is more of a title. Listen to it in 1 Peter 1, or verse 8. Though you have not seen Christ, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, those modify each other. Who loves Christ? Those who believe. Who believes? Those who love Christ. It's a title more than anything else. And then it becomes, or first and foremost, then it becomes a description of what we are and what we, we do. Okay, we love God because we because he poured, we love because he first loved us. But note this, because he loves us, we love. It's the definition of what we are. Likewise, the called, 2 Timothy 1.9. He saved us and called us with a holy calling. If you're saved, you've been called by God with a holy calling, here described as um, to those who are called according to his purposes. So this is only for believers. This is only for Christians. Do you understand what that means? That means that non-believers do not have this uh, uh, a certainty or this uh, promise. Which means the bad things that happen in their lives, brothers and sisters, there's no higher end. Satan's abuse and misuse of them, no higher end. Their cancer is misery. That's it. Nothing redeemable there. Nothing. Except for one thing. Cancer, hardship, and difficulty in the life of a non-Christian, a non-believer, a non, a does have a purpose in God's economy. And that purpose is found for us in Luke 13.1. You know the verse. I'll read it. It'll be up there. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. What a horrible, horrible uh, 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 tragedy. And Christ answered and said to him, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So yeah, for a, non, a non-believer, the horrible things in this life do serve as a, as, a, as a sober warning. This is a gracious act on the part of God. It's gracious to warn people of an impending doom. And God will warn them by giving them a foretaste of what awaits them if they remain unrepentant. Now, the irony is a non-believer goes through those things and goes, man, if God treats me like that, I don't want to serve him. It's the exact opposite. Do you understand what awaits you? If you? This is nothing in comparison to the lake of fire. So God gives you these small little sober waking up. C.S. Lewis describes it so well in the, in the problem with pain, I believe, is the book, where he says, brothers and sisters, we are, it's so easy for us to become dulled, uh, lulled uh, to sleep by life. What does pain do? It wakes you up. It makes you realize something's not wrong. It has these beautiful statements about how, how that is what God is doing in your life. And he does it in the life of the world. This world is not right. Something's wrong. Let's not make our homes here. So they can be used in the life of non, a believer as a warning. But nothing, but nothing more noble. For you and me, the exact opposite. If you're a child of God... You have the confidence that the things of this world have a greater significance 
a significance that transcends the here and now. As such, though we encounter difficulties and loss in this life, we live, serve, grieve, and minister in hope. In the same book, I believe it's the same book, Lewis calls us the immortals. Think about this. You're one of the immortals. You're going to outlive those mountains. He writes, we shall live to remember the galaxies as an old tale. We're the immortals. We're image bearers of of God and as Christians, we're going to live long enough to remember this world as an old tale in the new heavens and the new earth. And I guarantee you there, what happens here, you're going to go, praise God. Because in the words of, of Rutherford, I wouldn't be enjoying this if it wasn't for every atom that God used in his providence to mold and shape me. All right. How certain can we be on this one? Is there a certainty here? Let me, let me or, or, or how confident can you be with this? Let's close with, with where Paul closes, 29 through 30, and I'll wrap this up uh, quickly. Notice the next phrase, 29, for whom he foreknew. That for gives us the basis for everything he just said. Okay? So it's the basis of the basis. Okay, why, why can we have the confidence? How can we know for certain all things work together for good? You could say, well, let's look back because of the, the seven previous benefits. Now Paul says, now I want you to look forward. I want you to look at 29 and 3. This is why. Because whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the end game. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he called. And whom he called, these he justified. And whom he justified, these he glorified. I'm not going to define any of these words. That'll be saved for another sermon at another day. But understand what he's saying here. Do you understand what, God, what, what, what 29 and 30 does to verse 28? It tells you that, that what you've just said and professed to be true as, as absolute reality, truth, and we know for certain, we know this to be true, it's not based upon anything you do. Do you understand that? That's 29 and 30. That's uh, the role. It's all about God. Why? Because God foreknew you. Real quickly, definition, prognosco, beforehand. God, God ordained to have a love relationship with you before the world began. That is why all things work together for, for good. And whom he foreknew these, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the end game. Why is it that all things work together all for good? Because God has predestined you to become conformed to the, perfectly conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's going to happen in the new heavens and the earth, new earth. And therefore, what did God do? Well, he called you. He justified you. And eventually, he's going to glorify you. you, See, brothers and sisters, none of what we're talking about is in any way mitigated or compromised by your infidelity. You go, man, I blew it. God, all things work together for good, but I just sinned a massive sin before God. And I know now, man, God's going to get me. Brothers and sisters, do you realize how awesome your God is? He's able to even use that sin to mold and shape you to be the man and woman God's called you to be. After, of course, as he cleanses you and forgives you and restores you. If that's true, then we, I close with these four corollaries, if you will.
Number one, when you and I are facing a, a trial, God has not abandoned you, nor is he getting even for something you've done because of that. We know this because God works all things together for, uh, for good. What he's doing, he's not punishing. He's not spanking you. He's not abandoning you. He is working continually all things for your good. Psalm 103, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. If you ever needed a verse to prove that truth, this is it. He has not, um, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us. He doesn't spank you for your sin. He's not rewarded us according to our sin. How is this so? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So God's disposition towards all in Christ is that he's a father to us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So first and foremost, as you and I live life, as you and I struggle and have bad things happen, it's because we've been ordained to suffer with Christ. Philippians 1, uh, 29. God's not punishing you. God is using this to mold and shape you to become the man or woman God wants you to be in the new heavens and the new earth. So get away from Zeus and Mount Olympus, please, Christian. And stop looking at the bad things and the, the, the difficult things. Is Oh, God must be angry at me now. He's changed his disposition. God's angry now. Brothers and sisters, it can be further from the truth. Read Psalm 103, or better yet, read Romans 8.28. Secondly, accordingly, God is intimately involved in the details of our lives in which he takes the worst that this world can throw at us, even ourselves, our own sin, and uses it to bring about our eternal good. In the words of Jeremiah, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for welfare, not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. God has that end game in mind, brothers and sisters. Not a calamity, but a future, a new heavens, new earth, and a hope. Wow. If that is true, then you know what's going to happen, brothers and sisters. Today, you and I do not understand the whys and the wherefores. We don't. Last statement, therefore, while we may not understand the wherefores and the whyfores, or the wheres and whyfores of a particular difficulty, we know that in eternity future, it will all make sense. I close with John thirteen seven. Jesus Christ is in the upper room. He's, there's been an argument as to who's the greatest because no one wants to wash the feet of the disciples of each other, and so Jesus stands up and he washes, right? He comes to Peter, and Peter says, Oh, no, Lord, not me. Where, where was that attitude just five minutes ago? Not me, Lord, I'm not worthy. You know, and Jesus has this conversation with him. He says, I've got to wash your feet. And Peter's like, No, no, no. And so this is what Jesus says. And you can take this as an app. I, this is a memory verse. I encourage you to memorize it. This is a great verse for all of your life. Jesus said, answered and said to Peter, what I, do not, what I do, you do not realize now but you shall understand hereafter. There's going to come a time in our lives, brothers and sisters, that every one of us are going to have an aha moment. In the new heavens and the new earth, guaranteed, mark my words, John 13, 7, we're going to understand. And when that day comes, we will say with Rutherford, I would not be in this place right now if it wasn't for how God gloriously managed my life on this side of the grave. That's the eighth and final benefit. I hope you can leave here built up, confident with this sense of um, security. We know 
all things. Now, just as a, a rebuke on me, when I tried to help my sister in the Lord, I was committing, I was violating Proverbs twenty twenty five. Right? Which says, as like a garment on a, taken off on a cold day or like vinegar on soda um, is uh, something. <laughs> I'm not an actor. If I was an actor, I would have had that line down. Let me get it for you real quickly here. Proverbs 20, 25. It says this incredible uh, promise. Um... Well, guess what? It's not 25, 20, 25. It's 25, 20, I hope. It is. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. All right, I violated that. I was singing songs to a troubled heart. I should have weeped with those who weep and not take this, put on a bumper sticker and slap it against their forehead. Okay, I blew it. And that doesn't mean because she repined with, with Romans 8.28 against it that she's not a lover of the Lord or the whole bit. Now, brothers and sisters, in fair weather, mend the sails. Learn this truth so that when you're in the, the, the crucible, you're not there going, what in the world has happened? But you can sit there with a confidence and a security which says, I know. While today I don't understand I know that tomorrow I will because God is working all things for good. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word and the glorious promise that this whole chapter um, culminates in. We begin with no condemnation into sonship and fellowship and all these other incredible benefits that we enjoy because of Jesus Christ, one building upon the other. Where we come to the point where where even in our greatest weakness, the Spirit of God is is working. And all of this culminates, all of this, with this confession of faith. We know without a shadow of, of, of a doubt that all things, that you work all things for our good and we know ultimately for your glory. God, I pray you give us grace to, to uh, that you would, Spirit, take this and transform our thinking. Prepare us, O oh Lord, for the harsh weather that's coming. That we would be a people who, who would kiss the hand that might smite us. That we would be a people who would praise and glorify you, O oh God, in the midst of the storm, knowing, O Lord, that you saved us not to reign on this side of the grave. For if you had, your servants would have been fighting that you might not be delivered up to the Jews. But Lord, no, you saved us and are uh, sanctifying us and preparing for us to co-reign with you today, yes, but ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. God, we look forward to that day in hope and anticipation But until then, Lord, give us the grace to trust you. I pray, O Lord, if there should be any here present who do not know you, open their eyes, O God, that they might see that the difficulties of this world are there, not because you're not on the throne or because you're not caring, but because you are so gracious that you would would give these foretastes of warning that we might repent and turn before it's too late. Lord, we pray, open their eyes that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, confessing their uh, sin, turning from their sin, 
to trust you as their Lord and Savior. God, give them life, we pray this day. But for us all, Lord, strengthen our faith and give us the grace to to take these promises as part of the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ this day. And so, Lord, give us the grace to, to take them to delight in them frequently, to open them, to, to, to hold them in our hands, to cherish them, to hug them, to love them. For they are ours as our birthright in Christ. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.